In this podcast, Dr. Simon provides valuable guidance for clinicians on how to recognize and assess shift work disorder in clinical settings. He covers clinical clues that may suggest a circadian rhythm problem, how to take a sleep history, tools for assessing sleep disturbances, practical strategies to help patients shift their biological clocks, and when to consider more aggressive treatment and or referral for a specialized sleep consultation. We're going to be talking uh, today about the clinical recognition and assessment of shift work sleep disorder. And one of the reasons we want to do this is there are numerous health consequences associated uh, with shift work and shift work problems. The physiology of chronic circadian misalignment, uh, when we have uh, biological clock activity and dyssynchrony uh, with waking uh, activity. Abnormalities that can occur with abolic effects, such as dampening of circadian temperature amplitude, changes in insulin levels, changing in leptin levels, thyroid, cortisol, melatonin, and a variety of other hormonal systems uh, that become dyssynchronous when one lives in chronic circadian misalignment. Uh, we also see that there are cardiovascular abnormalities, uh, including dampening of the night dip in blood pressure, their gastrointestinal abnormalities, immunologic, including increased risk of infection. Uh, and recently, there's been increasing data that um, uh, one of the circadian functions of clock genes might be also to uh, uh, surveil DNA replication mistakes and to stop them and correct them. Uh, additionally, patients who live in chronic circadian misalignment conditions have poor quality sleep, as we've previously heard, and that can then lead to excessive sleepiness during waking hours, neurocognitive dysfunction, physical uh, dysfunction in terms of reaction time coordination, uh, and uh, abnormalities of mood. But one of the other etiologies of health risks includes the fact that the person who is a shift worker is also living out of sync with the rest of the world. And this can lead to incredible family stresses and other stresses that can affect a person's well-being. So the etiologies of the health risks of the shift worker um, are numerous. What determines when we sleep and when we are awake is really a combination of a variety of factors, including biological clock alerting activity. Remember, the biological clock alerts us for about 16 hours a day increasingly. Homeostatic sleep drive, which refers to the fact that the longer we are awake, the more we accumulate a need to sleep. But additionally, there's some ancillary alerting systems that can be represented psychologically by concepts such as fear, excitement, interest, physical activity. There are external determinants also of sleep-wake. For example, the external environment. If it's noisy, unsafe, we're not going to sleep well. And then there are drugs, chemicals, and medications that are external to us but that we can internalize by taking, and they can also have a profound effect on sleep and wake. Additionally, there are intrinsic sleep disorders that can destroy the quality of sleep, in particular obstructive sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome. And there are intrinsic sleep disorders such as narcolepsy, which have to do with abnormalities of waking function of the brain and of certain parts of the brain that may help stabilize the wakeful state. Uh, and we're not going to have time today, but other medical and psychiatric illnesses uh, can also influence one's ability to stay awake or one's ability to sleep. So the determinants of sleep-wake are numerous. The next slide talks about uh, what we think of as the opponent process of sleep. 
And this is a cartoon that just uh, illustrates on the bottom the circadian wakeful promoting aspects of the biological clock, which we think is located in the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus, how all day long this will progressively alert us, while at the same time, illustrated in the top of this cartoon, as we stay awake, we develop a need to sleep or the sleep load or homeostasis. So as we awaken in the daytime, the biological clock is progressively alerting us as we develop a sleep debt, the alerting abilities of the biological clock overcome that, and then at night, about 16 hours later, when the clock normally begins to turn off, it is the homeostatic sleep drive that then pushes us to sleep and sleep restfully. Where these ancillary alerting systems uh, become important represents the difference between what we can recall psychological sleepiness and physiologic sleepiness. For example, a person who is absolutely exhausted and is actually quite sleepy, which would be in uh, indicated by the uh, physiologic sleepiness. If we provide them with exogenous or endogenous stimulation, such as fear, interest, physical activity, caffeine, they actually can perform as if they're awake. But as soon as we take away those other ancillary learning systems, uh, they go into the twilight zone and fall asleep. In fact, this is the mechanism by which boredom causes sleepiness. Patients who are very, very sleepy when they get bored, we find the effects of caffeine go away, the effects of physical activity are gone, interest is gone, fear is gone, and now we're left with the underlying homeostatic sleep drive, presumably a turned off biological clock, and a person will fall asleep under those conditions. What are some of the clinical clues that there may be a circadian rhythm disorder? The biggest clue is an irregular sleep-wake schedule. So anytime a patient uh, has a vastly different sleep-wake schedule day to day to day, you can virtually be sure that there are circadian issues that need to be considered. Now, in human beings, uh, circadian rhythms can change by no more than about two to four hours in any given day. So any sleep-wake schedule that varies by more than that between work days and days off suggests that there are circadian issues that need to be considered. One of the best ways to determine this, though, is if in the desired sleep period, there are combinations of insomnia and hypersomnia. For example, insomnia at bedtime, I can't fall asleep. Um, that's a problem that can be consistent with the biological clock that's turned on and is alerting you. At the same time, that person then might complain that they have hypersomnia at the desired wake time. For instance, I can't wake up. Um, if you have insomnia at bedtime, hypersomnia near your desired wake time, that suggests you have what we call a delayed sleep phase syndrome. In other words, you're a night owl. And who do we see this in? Well, these are particularly teenagers. I can't go to bed at 10 o'clock. I just can't fall asleep. Yet mom and dad can't wake them up at 6 in the morning for school because they're still exhausted. These are the people who abuse the snooze button and hit it repeatedly. Well, these aren't patients who truly have insomnia. This is actually a circadian rhythm disorder. What they basically have is is a sleep-wake schedule that's out of sync with what their brain's sleep-wake schedule is. On the other side to this, hypersomnia at bedtime, in other words, I'm falling asleep at 7, 8 o'clock at night as I watch TV. I can't stay awake. I'd like to stay awake till 10 o'clock. And in insomnia at desired wake time, I'd like to be able to sleep until 6, but I'm waking up at 3 in the morning. That suggests that the biological clock is turning off too early 
and is turning on too early, and that we call infant sleep phase syndrome. And typically we see that in grandma and grandpa. Uh, they fall asleep after dinner, can't stay awake till 10 o'clock if they'd like to, and then they wake up at 3 in the morning and can figure out why they can't get back to sleep. And that may be because their desired sleep-wake schedule, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., is out of sync with their biological clock's rhythms, which might be an 8 p.m. to, say, 4 or 5 a.m. Uh, sleep-wake schedule. So those are the clues that a circadian rhythm disorder might be present. In a regular sleep-wake schedule, a sleep-wake schedule that varies by more than two to four hours between workdays and days off, and then either insomnia and hypersomnia on either side of the desired sleep period. So when we go to take a sleep history, the most important thing, of course, is to look at sleep-wake schedules. And it's important to do so on work days, days off, and then vacation days. Vacation days in particular have a tendency, at least clinically, to tell you what a patient's intrinsic sleep-wake schedule would be. And you look to see how much these differ. We also ask what is the quality of sleep. Do you sleep all night? Do you feel refreshed in the morning? Or do you have a fragmented sleep? But at the same time, what's the quality of wakefulness? Is it easy to maintain alertness throughout the day, or do you find yourself getting fatigued and sleepy in the day? Everybody um, in whom you're going to take a sleep history from needs to be asked about snoring. Do you snore? Do you have witnessed apneas? If so, that alone demands uh, uh, that some sort of sleep evaluation and sleep study needs to be done. Restless leg syndrome uh, is characterized by a weird, uncomfortable, creeping, crawling, restless feeling in the legs, typically at night. They can occur in the daytime too, but typically there's a circadian influence, and so it typically happens more at night. And this can make falling asleep very, very difficult. Abnormal nocturnal behaviors, for example, have you ever injured yourself or others by acting out dreams? That requires a sleep study. Um, Narcolepsy is characterized by excessive sleepiness, but also something called sleep paralysis. Do you ever awaken from sleep where you know you're awake? You go to open your eyes to move, but nothing happens. Cataplexy is another characteristic narcoleptic symptom in addition to sleepiness, and that is that patients with narcolepsy, when they really get emotional, in particular when it's pleasant emotion, like giggling, laughing, telling a joke, can actually develop uh, a sense of paralysis, muscle fatigue, and muscle weakness. These are REM sleep phenomena that occur abnormally in narcoleptics. The sleep history has to consider the use of drugs and medications that help with sleep or help with alertness, and in particular caffeine uh, in the daytime or pills to help you fall asleep at night. Uh, a sleep history also has to include the quality and the safety of the sleeping environment as well as the quality and safety of the waking environment and then, of course, a general medical and psychiatric history. Our assessment tools, uh, besides the history, uh, basically when we're looking at shift work disorder, include a sleep diary. Um, there are various sleepiness scales that can be used, um, uh, and uh, there are various depression and anxiety inventories uh, that can be used. The SF-36 version 2 is a general outcome assessment um, uh, measure available commercially that's been well standardized across many, many different um, illnesses. The next slide shows a very simple sleep diary where the patient's just instructed to put X marks when they're asleep. And the next uh, slide gives you uh, uh, one that's been filled out. This is a person who goes to bed typically about 10 p.m., 10 to 11, gets up typically about 6 o'clock every day, and occasionally naps in the afternoon. And this is actually um, my sleep-wake schedule uh, that I've put down uh, so that you can look at it. 
The next schedule um, and the next sleep diary shows a very different type of a sleep-wake pattern where for many days the patient goes to bed at 11 p.m., gets up at 6 or 7, but there are many days where the patient goes to bed at 8 a.m. and sleeps until 2 in the afternoon with a variety of naps. And what we actually did was we had one of our uh, night technologists in the sleep center actually record uh, his sleep-wake schedule. So this would be what a typical shift worker would look like. And as you can see, uh, this uh, person varies his sleep-wake schedule by way more than two to four hours, and so you can predict that there are issues of circadian misalignment in this person. The upward sleepiness scale is just a series of eight questions in eight situations. What is your chance of dosing in these situations? Uh, an upward sleepiness scale of greater than 10 uh, suggests that there's profound excess of sleepiness. I use the upward sleepiness scale not so much to define sleepiness as much as to follow patients. So after we make an intervention, we have them repeat the upper sleepiness scale and see does it improve. The insomnia severity index uh, is another measure that's commonly used. Again, um, the absolute numbers aren't so much as important as following them over the course of time after intervention. So these are fairly simple ways of actually following patients, the sleep diary, uh, an upper sleepiness scale, um, or insomnia severity index. Actigraphy is basically um, a monitoring device that measures motion in three dimensions that one wears in the risk um, and motion is recorded. And the assumption is when one isn't moving, uh, one is likely to be asleep, and when one is, is moving, one is likely to be awake. It's particularly accurate at nighttime when the patient says they've tried to fall asleep. My experience has been most shift workers, one does not actually need to do actigraphy monitoring. A simple sleep diary will give you the answer as will a history. Overnight sleep studies or polysomnography uh, really is not indicated in the diagnosis of shift work. Um, for shift work sleep disorder, a history sleep diary will tell you that the patient is living in chronic circadian dyssynchrony. Where polysomnography is indicated is if obstructive sleep apnea in particular is suspected. Uh, if a person uh, has injurious nocturnal behaviors during their sleep, they're acting out dreams, polysomnography is definitely warranted there. If you suspect that a person may actually have narcolepsy, polysomnography and, in fact, a fairly thorough evaluation is required, but usually the diagnosis of narcolepsy requires taking the shift worker out of shift work for a period of two to four weeks um, because shift work itself and the circadian misalignment can confuse the testing of narcolepsy. Periodic limb movements of sleep are also often seen in conjunction with restless legs. Um, Occasionally, we'll do polysomnography looking for this. It's not very often, though, because periodic limb movements of sleep, which can fragment sleep, leg movements at night, um, are not necessarily consistent. In other words, a person could have periodic limb movements one night and be absent the next. So it's not something that we do uh, very often. But if a person snores, has injurious behaviors at night, or you suspect narcolepsy, there's no question uh, but that polysomnography is warranted. But for the routine shift work, it's probably not indicated. There are a variety of NAP studies, a multiple sleep latency test, where we have a person uh, lie down, close their eyes, attempt to fall asleep every 20 minutes for, uh, I mean, every two hours for 20 minutes. A series of five naps will tell you if a person is sleepy. The converse of that, if you will, is a maintenance of wakefulness test, which is done basically the same way, except rather than instructing a patient to try to fall asleep, we instruct them to try to stay awake. 
and we look to see do they fall asleep quickly or can they stay awake. And at the present time, from a clinical point of view, these studies typically aren't done in shift work. Uh, as investigational studies to help study shift work, they certainly are done, but in the clinical setting, they usually aren't. Shift work itself occurs in isolation, but shift workers are human beings like everybody else, and as a result, one can expect that there's a fairly high prevalence of obstructive apnea, comorbid with shift work, restless leg syndrome. Uh, additionally, shift workers, because of poor sleep habits, can actually learn to sleep poorly. So psychophysiologic insomnia, um, learned insomnia behaviors can be problematic. Uh, additionally, shift workers, one has to deal with depression, anxiety, and of course, chronic fatigue. And it can be very hard to sort out these various things in a person who's also living in chronic circadian dyssynchrony. What are the treatment options? Well, the treatment options we're really going to talk about are how does one go about eliminating or diminishing the degree of circadian mismanagement. That's the primary way one goes about treating shift work and other circadian rhythm disorders. We also like to identify and treat any intrinsic sleep disorders such as apnea. Uh, also, medical and psychiatric disorders should be maximally treated. We want to promote better sleep. Um, we're not going to talk much about this, and this refers to the use perhaps of hypnotics to promote sleep. There are also ways of promoting better alertness, including the use of alerting agents and a combination of any or all of the above. We're not going to talk about the promoting better sleep or better alertness uh, in this talk. So how do we uh, go about changing sleep-wake schedules in circadian and biological clock activity? We use what are called zeitgebers, uh, uh, time givers. Light, exogenous melatonin, dark, and exercise are the main ones in humans. And uh, the light melatonin phase response curve, the most sensitive time uh, for a Zeitgeber, at least in terms of light, uh, is about a two hours before a patient's spontaneous wake time, uh, or in the hour or two after that. For example, if one gives very bright light, a pulse of very bright light, about two hours to four hours before your spontaneous wake time. For example, I spontaneously, let's say, wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning. If at about 3 o'clock in the morning I wake up and expose myself to very bright light, the next morning I'm likely to wake up two to four hours later. So bright light several hours before your spontaneous wake time tends to convert you into more of a night owl and make you wake up later. On the other hand, if at just about my spontaneous wake time, or maybe an hour before that, I expose myself to very, very bright light, the next morning I'm likely to wake up two to four hours earlier and become more of a morning lark or advance my sleep phase. So bright light has very, very powerful effects if timed properly. Melatonin does just about the opposite. Melatonin in the evening tends to make me fall asleep earlier and wake up earlier, so it tends to advance me, make me a morning lark. But melatonin in the morning tends to do the opposite. It tends to make me a night owl. So melatonin and light act at opposite periods of time. The next slide, which is phase response curve for dark, shows that taking dark naps in a darkened environment basically acts about the same way as melatonin does. So if you want to Go to bed earlier, exposing yourself to very little light and dark in the evening will help you go to bed earlier. On the other hand, if you want to sleep in later, getting a, exposing yourself to dark, absence of light in the morning will help do that, and there's a phase response curve for that. 
And lastly, I'm not going to talk about this much, but the next slide shows a phase response curve for exercise. And in fact, one can time exercise to also get phase shifting conditions. For example, if you exercise in the early evening, that can tend to phase advance you and make you more of a morning person. If you exercise, um, for instance, after midnight, that typically does the opposite. Most of us do not use exercise much to phase response in humans. Although sleep doctors will quite frequently talk about the importance of light, what we also need to talk about is the importance of dark. Um, and it's primarily in the shorter wavelength light, the blue light, that helps phase shift you. And so one of the ways of making a biological clock exposed to dark is by wearing blue blocking sunglasses or dark sunglasses. One can also think of melatonin as being a pill form of dark. Light makes you wake up earlier or phase advances you when given at the wake time. Melatonin phase advances when giving near bedtime. So morning light at about the time you're going to wake up and melatonin, say, 10 hours before that, will help make you more of a morning lark. On the other hand, if you want to become a night owl, what we do is we give you bright light in the evening and then melatonin in the early morning. Light at night, dark in the morning, uh, uh, makes you more of a night owl. So what are the practical strategies when we have a shift worker? Well, there are a couple of things. Number one, in the workplace, one of the things that minimizes some of the problems with shift work is for shift workers to have a predictable work schedule so that they can schedule. Additionally, sufficient breaks at work, uh, and in particular, if the uh, employment place will allow the shift worker to take a short nap at work, that can be very helpful. And then the other thing is avoiding multiple days of work in a row and to get sufficient time off between days. A lot of these things are predicated upon uh, the observations that the vast majority of shift workers don't fully get used to shift work and don't fully entrain. For individuals, having short commute times is helpful, minimizing overtime, and then uh, uh, to try to have a, to minimize the degree of circadian misalignment between on days and off days. And this invariably involves the education and enlisting the support of the significant others in the family and in the immediate social circle of the shift worker. Circadian reincrement. We try to minimize the difference between the sleep wake schedule on work days and off days. And for most shift workers, this means making them much more of night owls and phase delaying them. What we basically want to do is try to change their environment so that they get as much light as possible during their scheduled, quote, day and as little light as possible during their scheduled, quote, night, and we want to minimize the difference in hours between work and off days. So bright light at work if possible, sunglasses and darkened on the drive home from work when they're likely to be exposed to light, and then once they get home, have the bedroom as dark as possible, and the trip to the bathroom or other rooms they're going to use during their sleep period as dark as possible also. If you can re-entrain shift workers completely or even partially, you actually get marked improvement in uh, psychomotor vigilance, memory, excess of sleepiness, exhaustion, and mental exhaustion scales. So this actually works. Simple reaction time is improved if shift workers are completely or even partially re-entrained. Uh, reaction time for complicated procedures improves. Mathematical processing improves. Um, matching the samples improved. Code substitutions. All the type of tasks a shift worker is likely to have to perform gets better over the course of time if they can completely re-entrain or partially re-entrain their circadian rhythms. Mental fatigue and mood disturbances also improve. So let's move on to a case now. 
This is a 44-year-old male who complains of insomnia and daytime fatigue. Uh, he works the evening shift, 4 p.m. to midnight. He has a 60-minute drive to work. On work days, he goes to bed about 4 a.m. He would like to sleep until noon, but his wife wakes him at 6.30 so that he can get the kids. He has three ready for school. She has to go to work at 7. He gets home at about 8 after he takes the kids to school and sleeps until noon when he gets up to do household chores. On weekends, he tries to go to bed with his wife at 10 p.m. and wake up with her at 6, but he tosses and turns for several hours and is exhausted and can't get up at 6 a.m. He doesn't snore. He doesn't have symptoms of restless legs. He does consume 6 to 12 cups of coffee in the morning and weekends so that he can function with the family. Even so, he's exhausted. Now, his job requires him to spend three months on evening shifts, three months on graveyard shifts, midnight to 7 a.m., and then three months on day shifts. On the evening shift, he has very little difficulty maintaining wakeness. When he works the graveyard shift, he has very a great deal of difficulty maintaining alertness on the drive home from work. And when he gets home, he has trouble sleeping past noon. When he works day shifts, he has an incredible amount of difficulty maintaining alertness on the drive to work. And he has difficulty maintaining alertness at work during the first half of his shift. His wife is unhappy that he seems to be unwilling and, able, and unable on his days off to go to bed at 10 and wake up at 6 and participate in family events. What's the problem? The problem here is that he has uh, rotating shifts every three months. The patient fundamentally is a night owl with an optimal time from that history that appears to be about 4 a.m. to noon. But his family leads a regular diurnal life, and he's expected to participate in this. And what becomes quite apparent is his family doesn't really understand why he can't sleep like the rest of the family on his days off and why he can't easily sleep uh, in the daytime on his work days. On his night shift, he drives home from work in the light, which is, of course, going to, try to, going to make him think that that's when the day starts. He needs to take the kids to school. These things are going to inhibit his ability to sleep. He also socializes typically for one to two hours after work before driving home because he's quite alert then. At work, he maintains good alertness, and he could sleep until noon, as I've mentioned. On the weekends, however, he can't fall asleep at 10 o'clock with his family because he is a night owl, and that's when his biological clock is very active. On the graveyard sheet, um, uh, uh, shift, uh, the last few hours of work, which is when he normally would go to bed, 4 a.m., he's exhausted, and he has a great deal of trouble driving home from work because he's driving home when his biological clock is basically turned off. He also has trouble sleeping past noon, even though he's tired, because at about noon is when his intrinsic clock begins turning on, and once again, he has trouble sleeping with the family on the weekends. Now, in the day shift, we see the whole thing flip-flop, is now he has difficulty driving to work, because when he has to get up to go to work at, say, 5 or 6 in the morning, his biological clock is off. He has a great deal of difficulty staying awake at work during the first half of his shift, but the second half of his shift, when his clock is beginning to turn on, he has more ability to stay awake. So how do we resolve this problem? Well, the way we did it clinically was we actually scheduled a second one-hour visit, but with his family and his wife so that we could explain what the circadian principles are, what the physiology of sleep and wakefulness, and that he really doesn't have as much choice as to when he sleeps as, as you may think he does. Um, we got the wife to buy in that the patient must have protected sleep time and that the timing of this will vary depending on what shift he's working. We also got the husband to buy in that he's going to have to make some changes also. So what we agreed upon is in the evening shift, rather than talking to his buddies for a couple of hours after his shift is over, the patient agrees to go home immediately and to attempt to go to bed from 2 to 10 a.m. 
We're going to keep his bedroom as dark as possible from 2 to 10 a.m., but as soon as 10 a.m. comes, he's to get as much bright light as possible, trying to uh, tell his brain, if you will, that the day actually starts at 10 a.m. After midnight, we want to keep his workplace and his environment dark. Um, his wife has agreed to go to work an hour later, and she will get the kids off to school. Now, on graveyard shifts, the patient will put on very, very dark glasses as he drives home. Uh, he will try to sleep on work days from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and bright light after about 5 p.m. He might consider taking some melatonin as soon as he gets home to help shift him also. And on weekends, on his days off, we'll have a compromise position where he will go back to sleeping from 4 a.m. to noon. Um, he will also consider a cup of coffee, a stimulant, caffeine, and a nap before going to work. On the day shifts, which is going to be the most difficult for him, uh, he has agreed to try to wake up at 5.30, but now he's going to get some coffee as well as much light as he possibly can in the morning uh, and possibly even melatonin in the evening before his bedtime. On weekends, rather than going to bed at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, we're going to ask that he stay up till uh, midnight. That's going to be closer to what he can do and sleep until 8. And so we're going to try to devise three systems where um, uh, he's going to make compromises in his intrinsic biological clock uh, sleep-wake um, um, uh, schedule, uh, as we've described here, and the family's going to have to understand that depending on what shift he's working, his sleep-wake issues are going to be different. The other things we do talk about with him is does he need to continue working shifts or are there other jobs he could consider? And he and his wife have to, dis have to discuss this. They also, if you recall, live 60 minutes from work. Does he really need to live this so far away or could he consider moving? Um, we've also discussed what possible long-term effects of shift work are, which you've already heard about. To date, there isn't much data that a compromise re-entrainment uh, actually lessens the long-term effects of chronic circadian misalignment. We just don't know the answer to that yet. When would someone refer such a patient for a sleep consultation? Well, basically, if as a clinician you're uncomfortable managing shift work circadian issues, as we've talked about, by all means, refer patients. It takes time to manage shift work issues, so if you don't have that time, patients should be referred. Patients with a high likelihood of comorbid intrinsic sleep disorders, such as sleep apnea in particular, should all be referred because some sort of sleep study is going to be required of every one of those. The other thing is if your treatments aren't working, if the patient is still having difficulties with insomnia or excessive sleepiness when he wishes to be awake, those patients should be referred. If the patient is at considerable risk of falling asleep on the drive to or, or home from work, um, I would give serious consideration to a sleep consultation. And lastly, if the patient is involved in very dangerous work and is likely to fall asleep at work, um, we need to make more considerations than just circadian uh, changes that I've talked about. What can one expect from a sleep medicine consultation? Well, at the minimum, a thorough history and exam, a thoughtful synthesis of the case, a differential diagnosis, a diagnostic plan tailored to the particular patient, and I think that um, a thoughtful therapeutic plan should arise from this. And I think the sleep medicine consultation should also help coordinate appropriate follow-up with the patient and appropriate communication uh, to the referring healthcare provider. So I'm going to leave by asking you one more question. Which population in our society does the highest percentage of shift work? Do you know? Or would you hazard to guess? Okay, well, would you consider it a shift worker who can't go to bed till midnight 
likes to wake and can't get up until 8 or 9 in the morning but has to get up at 6 o'clock every morning for work, would that be a shift worker? The answer is yes. So who has those schedules? Teenagers. Teenagers are the biggest group of shift workers I maintain in the country and in the world because in teenage years, as part of going through adolescence, you develop what's called a delayed sleep phase syndrome. You become night owls. That's part of adolescent um, development. What do we do when you get to high school? Grade school start times are about 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning. When you go to high school, you have to start school in Walla Walla at 7, 10 in the morning. These kids are exhausted in the morning. They cannot wake up in time for school because their biological clocks are night owl clocks. They can't fall asleep at 10 o'clock at night because their brains are awake at 10 o'clock at night. So mom and dad and everybody yell and scream at the kids. You get all these fights at night because the kids won't fall asleep. Well, the kids would like to fall asleep. They can't. Then you get all the secondary fights in the morning because the kids won't wake up. It's not that they won't wake up. They can't wake up. If we were to change high school start times to 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, this problem would, I think, by and large resolve. And in fact, the schools that have changed high school start times to 8.30 or 9 have noticed marked improvement in attitudes of kids, learning of kids, decreased truancy, decreased delinquency, the whole business. I mean, well, the biggest group of shift workers that we have, I will maintain, are our teenagers, the people that are least able to handle this. And you can say, when you look at all the mood changes with shift work, is the fact that we sleep-deprive our teenagers because of the delayed sleep phase syndrome that's inherent in the adolescent development, early high school start times, which we for some reason impose in them, the profound sleep deprivation that occurs as a result of that, does that have anything to do with increased rates of impulsive behavior, uh, suicides in teenagers, depression, anxiety? And the answer has to be, I'm sure it plays a huge role.